Hello and welcome to this Rumble exclusive live stream, first of its kind, presented by me, your host Connor, joined today by Harry. Hello! We're discussing James Lindsay's war on Christian nationalism and- And the right in general, to be perfectly honest. Well, we'll get into that. It's more so whether or not he's right about liberalism being the sole solution to the long march through the institutions of woke, intersectionality and the like. It's not. Well done to spoil the stream, I guess go home. Uh, (laughs) There you go, simple answer, simple as, right? So, so- Off to pub lads. I I think- we may as well preface this with our yep. relative positions just because I don't want this to be too hostile because no. I must say I respect James Lindsay's work rebuking things like critical race theory and queer theory he's been involved in the Tennessee drag ban the actual mm-hmm. legislation drafting to protect kids and I would like to say that we have biases going into this to a varying degrees yeah. because I am a practicing read practicing as attempting Catholic although not the best <laughs> one and as far as I understand it you believe in God but you're non-denominational Pretty much. I recently came over and realised that I believe in God. Also, one of my other biases is that I do consider myself right-wing in a more traditional sense, Yes, shall we say. So I have a lot of disagreements with what James Lindsay has to say on the utility of liberalism, certainly as an ideology that can get us out of the situation that modernity has put us in, or post-modernity, post-modernity has put us in. I do want to say as well for my own Um, to get it out of the way. Uh, James Lindsay was someone who was useful for me at the beginning of my political journey. I did read Cynical Theories years ago. I've got it right here, and uh, this isn't my copy, Uh, but I found it useful at the time. I will say revisiting it for this stream, it was slightly less impressive, but at the time it was very useful for me, and it pushed me along, and it is useful for helping normies possibly to break out of some of the assumptions they have about the world. Although I would say that one of my criticisms as we go into later will be that it may break them out of a few of the woke assumptions, but it certainly won't break them out of the false liberal assumptions. Yeah, we are not speaking within the liberal materialist paradigm. We're orienting somewhere more towards a metaphysical, cultural reconstitution of something post-woke. So we might be deviating on our directions of travel from Lindsay. Currently, we're fighting the same enemy. It's just that he seems to be punching a bit more rightward recently. And I say all of this as well because I have a dialogue with James Lindsay since he shared one of my segments quite a while ago. Thank you very much for that. He was unavailable to come on the show recently. I said he has an open extended invitation in future and maybe we might be able to iron out some of our disagreements with him. So things are all still cordial. So he's going to war against Christian nationalism. Best we define our terms first because this is one of the sticking points that I think Lindsay has with this and you at home may not be familiar with the term. So we have a few definitions. Turns out that there is a conversation within the right on this and there isn't consensus, so I think we'll go to the boomer palatable definition. I I will also just admit, before ever hearing about James Lindsay talk constantly about Christian nationalism, I had not really registered it as anything to really take seriously. I am not that familiar with Christian nationalism outside of what you're going to tell me and what you Mm -hmm. already have told me and what I have listened to from James Lindsay's new discourse podcast on the two wolves of Christian nationalism, which we have both listened to and I think we both have some pretty harsh criticisms of that podcast in particular. Yeah, and so I think we'll best set our terms for foundation to be able to critique Lindsay's misapprehension of what this is. So, to the first version from elected politician Marjorie Taylor Greene. Let's take a listen. What do you say Christian nationalism is? Well, I'm I'm a Christian. Um, you know, I, I, I have my full faith in God and Jesus is my savior. 
I'm I'm not perfect. I'm I'm definitely a sinner. I know that for sure. And that's why I put my faith in the Son of God who died on a Roman cross so that my sins could be forgiven. And that's the profession of my faith. I also believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and I believe the words in the Bible. Uh, that's what being a Christian is. Uh, Jesus's commandment, uh, God's commandment to us is to love God uh, first and then love people uh, like we love ourselves and, and love him and like he loves people. So I don't see how this is a scary thing. It's definitely not racist. Um, people includes all people, even the ones we don't like. Um that doesn't mean that we back down and cave into their demands uh, or, or what they want us to do, because I believe a lot of the things the left want are extremely wrong and sinful. So being a Christian isn't a, isn't a bad thing. It, it actually is a really good thing for, for everyone. Uh, being a nationalist means I just love my country. I love America. I'm proud to be an American. I, I'm elected by the people in Georgia's 14th district, and I'm, I'm very grateful and and humbled to serve uh, and represent them here in Congress, but also means that I believe that Americans' hard-earned tax dollars should be used for America and our interests, such as securing our border, uh, making sure that our economy is strong, that our businesses are put forth first, not other businesses and other countries. Um, and I care about our kids' future, and that means that I think that our government should be working for America's interests first. So I don't see how that's a bad thing. And actually, Michael, most Americans feel this way. Most Americans care about our country and are tired of money going over to foreign countries and never-ending foreign wars and other countries' borders being being cared about and ours being completely neg neglected. So these aren't radical issues. As a matter of fact, these are pretty common issues. Well, the way... So a little bit low resolution, I think, but it's fair to say mm. that it's not race-based fascism or anything like that. I, I think it's just arguing from American exceptionalism and a Christian cultural I, ethos. I certainly don't hear anything about everything has to exist within the state or nothing outside of the state. I don't no. hear any aspects of totalitarianism. As far as I can tell from what she's been saying and what I'm aware of with Christian nationalism, it seems like a attempt to reassert um, a coalition of people under a positive right-wing vision of traditional morals that are traditional to the US uh, because I imagine a lot of people are beginning to recognize especially with people like James Lindsay starting to hit to the right that the anti-woke coalition either will not hold forever or if woke is as some are predicting put away then those who exist within the anti-woke sphere who were formerly leftists or formerly identified as progressives um, will begin to immediately start to see the right as their enemies again yeah we don't share the same normative direction of travel as someone like jk rowling for example no, she may know what a woman is but she doesn't know what the vision of a good life is corresponding to what we would want let's so. not forget all the things that she did to retcon all of the harry potter characters to either being gay or different races than they actually were described as in being the book before all of a sudden she realized hold up there are people who want to uh, do bad things to children. Yes, and so one of the sticking points maybe with what Marjorie Taylor Greene said might be something that James Lindsay will later say in a podcast we'll talk about, which is the Two Wolves of Christian Nationalism one. He was saying that nationalism is rah-rah jingoism, whereas nationism <laughs> is more like patriotism. And so charitably he might be describing what an absurd and pointless distinction well he I might say let's be charitable he might be describing the george orwell distinction of nationalism of mm. where it's an abstraction of 
gratitude and thankfulness for existing within your nation and its traditions versus a blind ideological commitment to an to something like your country or to fascism or to celtic national identity or something like that it is a bit of an arbitrary distinction it's a, it's a bit nitpicky maybe he might be more comfortable if everyone used the word patriotism but far be it for me to get lost in the weeds so i, I thought i'd just make that conciliatory thing here is one of the wolves that Lindsay takes issue with. And, and William Wolfe puts forward a more civic-based Christian nationalism. And, and William Wolfe is the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Trump Administration's Department of Defence. And he says, Christian nationalism is the post-Reformation historical norm. Secular globalism is the post-modern current aberration. Now, Michael Knowles had said something similar in, in the previous podcast with Marjorie Taylor Greene, and he says that Christian nationalism, the antonym to which is satanic globalism. And I don't think that's just a pithy phrase, because something you said off air was that the French Revolution was the germination of the left-right paradigm. One of those, the left side of the house, wanted to not only overthrow the monarchy, but also overthrow the church. And so they are serving the interests of anti-particular values, starting from year zero, anti-Christian values, and then the libertine attitudes that come downstream from capital our reason are the kind of do what thou wilt doctrine of either Alistair Crowley or Satan himself. So it, it, it's a bit of a reductive phrase, but when you unpack it symbolically, it does make sense. Well, as far as I'm concerned, and I've said this recently on Twitter as well, post-French Revolution and especially post-World War II in the post-war consensus, the left-right spectrum has become as simple as this. Left means uh, libertinism and communism, right yes. just means anybody who is anti-communist, even in the sense of not wanting either economic um, either economic socialism or non-libertinism, if you want to assert particular standards for your society that aren't just going to degenerate into rampant coomerism, then you are immediately deemed some form of fascist, and that's been the manipulation of language that's been going on for uh, almost 80 years at this point. Yeah, and, and so that's the right-wing coalition that is currently in discourse with itself and seeing which elements are going to move forward with a metaphysical approach versus a material approach. Because <laughs> lots of the materialists don't have a bulwark against that capital P progressive libertine permissiveness. Well, they adhere to the Whig his theory of history. Yeah. Post-French Revolution uh, and post-Enlightenment, they seem to believe that the trajectory of history is the Martin Luther King thing. Oh, the arc of history is long, but it always goes towards justice. He plagiarised that, by the way. Yeah, of course he did. He plagiarised a lot, and he didn't write his own speeches. But uh, that's generally the way that somebody like James Lindsay will still see the world. He will see still see everything as being progressive. I noticed, and I don't want to call out too many people as part of this, but I noticed, I've not listened to it, but some people in the chat are pointing out that in the interview we had with Peter Bogosian, he referred to the right side of history, which is absolutely a post-enlightenment progressive viewpoint, the idea that there is a right side of history rather than just warring factions trying to assert existential values upon one another, which as we'll get onto, is more the Schmittian conception of how politics functions, which is certainly how I recognise things as being. Yeah, and I, th I think, it, in all fairness to Bogosian, he still considers himself on the left, but that does mean that we are going to have conflict as to which worldview we will reconstitute after Woke is put away. If we go on to the if, next tweet... If it is, well. As well, well I, I, I'm, I'm willing to say I'm, I'm going to do my part to crush it, Harry. Yes. So, Wolf describes Christian nationalism with a working definition... Christian nationalism is biblically informed political ideology with three main features. It honours Christ as the one true king and commanded preeminent love of all Christians. If you scroll down, please, John, so people can read it. 
It accepts the given reality of sovereign nation-states and calls on Americans to love, with a greater love, their fellow American citizens, and to prioritise the well-being of America over the general world order and even the international global population. So it's particular to America, American Christian nationalism. And three, it establishes, promotes, or preserves a Christian morality, ethical framework as the preferred core content of our nation's culture, values, traditions, civic life, and legal structures without idolising the state or requiring that all inhabitants be Christians. So is that a Christian ethos is imbued within the law, but the state does not displace God because God is God, and you don't force people at gunpoint to worship. It's just that the Christian paradigm is the dominant one, and people must live within it. So the, the liberal tolerance that is an outgrowth of, an abstraction of Christianity, is extended to people even if they're not practicing Christians, but they must defer to the fact that the state is unapologetically Christian, because otherwise you don't get that tolerance in the first place. To, to me, to simplify all of this down, this reads as though he's essentially saying, at the base of it, I just don't want the people in charge of the government to be completely evil. They have been yes. completely evil for a very long time. Can we not have completely evil people in charge of the country? Yes, but the, the evil is defined as the deviation away from Christian virtue, and Christian virtue was the bedrock of the forming of the United States, something we will get onto later, mm. because we have to dispel the fact that Christianity was somehow not involved <laughs> in the formation of America, which is ludicrous. Now, if you want to talk about li modern liberal myths, now that's a big one. Yes, and I think we can go on to the other wolf here, and it's important that we accurately characterise Stephen Did Wolf's you finish book. his book? Because it was 400 yes. pages. So you managed to read it in, what, three days? Yes. Impressive work. Uh, it was... Um, he could have used an editor, I will say. And I want to say <laughs> here as well that, that Lindsay is uncharacteristically unfair to Wolf, And I don't agree with lots of Wolf's statements in the case for Christian nationalism. His theology, I think, is wrong. Um mainly because he says that if the Garden of Eden would have continued, there would have been nation-states within it, because they would have had to adapt to privation, but the point of Eden is it was abundant. So that doesn't make any sense. Also, he openly admits he's probably not going to be able to reconcile the Baptists in the coalition, because obviously mm. they wait until adults are baptised, and that he's not sure how the Catholics will fit, because they might have dual loyalty, so I'm out of a job. But, <laughs> point being... There's, there's a lot of issues, it's not yeah. perfect, and you're not actually uh, putting it forward as a workable solution, no. but we are going to defend it against James Lindsay's characterization of it. Yes. I will say, from what you told me about it, it sounded like he's essentially just asking, can America please have a king? Yes. Uh, which is kind of a hard sell for Americans, unless you're Alexander Hamilton. I mean, he's going to... This is the thing. It's not <laughs> totally outside the American tradition. It's just you're probably going to throw your back out reaching for that ideal. So here's his book, The Case for Christian Nationalism. And I will actually read Stephen Wolfe's definition of Christian nationalism because he has a more reactionary one. He openly says it's not conservative because I don't want to conserve any of the institutions mm. that hate me. So we have to rebuild, not just maintain. Christian nationalism is a totality of national action consisting of civil laws and social customs conducted by a Christian nation as a Christian nation in order to procure for itself both earthly and heavenly good in Christ. A totality of national action, being the formal cause of Christian nationalism, refers to all the actions that a nation expects of its members for their overall national good. A set of actions that are inter interrelated such that their effect, i.e. winning a match, is a product of the whole, i.e. both defensive and off offensive actions by a team, not any particular part of the whole. The purpose or final cause of Christian nationalism is to establish the best possible conditions for the procurement of what I call the complete good, the goods of this life and of the life to come. In Christian nationalism, the nation is conscious of itself as a Christian nation and acts for itself as a Christian nation. Christian national consciousness is the ground and animating principle of its action. The entity that causes Christian nationalism is chiefly the people, not Christian magistrates, 
i.e. the king or lawmakers, though magistrates are necessary to direct the will of the people into concrete action. So, reciprocally, the people's will, which is a, a Christian faith, is reflected by their government, they act in the best interests of each other, and so the entire society acts in coordinated concert, not being top-down directed, towards achieving Christian goals. So, it's just a Christian state. This is just, as far as I can tell, uh, this is just trying to reorientate America back to what it was more like when it was founded as a country. Yeah, not liberal concerns, Christian concerns. Again, away from the metaf uh, away from the material paradigm. Well, you can the you can have paradigm. a liberal framework through which to uh, allow the individual states to promote christian values he goes on to say that and i'm going to have to break that down versus what james Lindsay says later oh, of course so this actually does follow general american opinions and i don't really cite opinion polls unless they typically agree with me if you go back please john there is a pew research <laughs> article here we go that's right we're real journalists it says half of all americans say the bible should influence u.s laws so 49 percent say the bible should have at least some influence on u.s laws including nearly a quarter 23 percent who say they should have a great deal of influence according to pew research Among I'm honestly surprised it's that many. Yeah, but then again, well, America is a much more um, much more Christian country yes, than England is. To its benefit, even though it's slightly waning. Uh, I mean, England, Christianity is the minority now. Among US Christians, two-thirds, 68%, want the Bible to influence US laws at least some, and among white evangelical Protestants, a group that Stephen Wolfe is particularly appealing to, this figure rises to about 9 in 10, 89%. So the Christian convictions of America within Christian communities are still very strong, and they want to be substantially represented in their government. Can you blame them when Muslim constituencies elect politicians here to do the exact same thing? I think that would actually be a flaw of multiculturalism, I mean, where you have incompatible values being represented in Parliament without any mode of discourse. You need some sort of shared cultural rubric. I mean, Callum and I covered on the podcast the other day, or maybe it was with you, I forget exactly, it's difficult to keep track all the time, I'm sorry, we cover a lot of news on here, um, that in London there was a constituent put forward... Um, in a mainly Muslim borough who had to be Muslim or, or, against some other people who were also being put forward. And it's like, well, obviously, you've got to put the ones who's going to get actually voted forward, which yeah. if you're talking about a Muslim borough, you're going to have to put a Muslim. That's exactly what the Conservatives have just done with their London mayoral pick. And I now think that's it's, what, yeah, it was. Yeah, now it's one ancestrally Muslim guy versus Sadiq Khan, a Muslim. So London's a caliphate, I suppose. So let's look at James Lindsay's stance on Christian nationalism. I'll let him speak for himself in this debate recently on Ali Beth Stuckey's podcast nitpick i honestly don't think i'm arguing with christians i'm arguing with people who think they're christians uh but that's a very christian thing to say which i can't claim so um i'm arguing with people who are in favor of the christian nationalism movement i don't think that the christian nationalist movement is a good idea uh, i have absolutely no problem with christians believing christians in fact i think that preventing the christian nationalist move is part of protecting uh, Christians' rights and freedoms to believe according to their pursuit and understanding of Scripture that they work out with their pastors. So like Stephen Wolf, William Wolf, those are two examples of people those who advocate two, yeah. for Christian Yeah, I just released a podcast about them. So if we read Stephen Wolf's book, and I have done a fair amount of this, and you talk to a lot of people who say that they believe in Christian nationalism, they say they don't recognize what is being portrayed there, like that we're going to have a Christian prince who's going to be the highest political office in the land that's going to rule over everything as the avatar of Christ on earth. That's in the book. I don't think most Christians in the United States agree with that idea. I think they actually want religious liberty. Um, so I'm not sure what it means. 
So that's very different to the sorts of statements he was putting forward in his Christian nationalism podcast, which was already out by then. Yeah, and when he talks about it in his Christian nationalism podcast, he talks about a lot about Mott and Bailey debate techniques. Yes, and this seems very much like he had retreated to the Mott where the Bailey was the New Discourses podcast that he had put out. That because that would, was a much more reasonable take. That's actually a fairly apt comparison that I hadn't thought of, particularly because, to spoil it a little bit, in the Two Walls of Christian Nationalism podcast, James says that he hasn't read the book. He says that and he had read a few excerpts and some negative reviews of it. Yes, so this is a bit of a different change of tune. Perhaps he did what I did and, and cram-read within the time. It. So that's Maybe. a possibility, but I think that he should, probably should have done that before he decided to do the podcast on it, like we've done, because he didn't quite represent Stephen Wolfe's opinions here. And and he does represent fairly that Stephen Wolfe does call for a Christian prince, which he says is the sort of highest appointed magistrate, but he's conceiving it more as what Hopper would say is a privately owned form of government, of where it is directly accountable to violent revolution, and he has an entire chapter justifying violent revolution in mm. the book that says if you stray from embodying Christian values, which the public expect you to do and want you to do, then you can be deposed and overthrown. And it's easy to do that than rooting up the permanent state or the deep state. Well, yeah, as, as far as I'm concerned, what Hopper is talking about um, and what anybody's talking about when they talk about a private conception of how the law is mm. uh, managed and how people are governed, you're just talking about a monarchy. Yes. Uh, monarchy is the private system of governance, whereas uh, the states and democ democratic states is the public system of governments. And obviously it is going to be easier to uproot an individual or mm. one family than the vast bureaucratic states that we have in the West at the moment. Yeah, and, and I understand that James is principally against a total reconstitution of the US government system because he believes in the liberal separation of powers. And so he and Stephen Wolfe just have very different conceptions, again, material versus metaphysical. And so I'm not nailing my colours to the mast and saying that Wolfe's ideas are something that I find desirable, nor do I think that they're likely to come to fruition in the United States soon, particularly because of the impossibility to reconcile the denominations with, with Stephen Wolfe. Yes. We, we do live under a constitutional monarchy in the UK, and despite King Charles's statements to be more multicultural and multi-faith, it worked very well with the Queen. It was actually the government structures that were the problem over here. So monarchy is, is not, by virtue of it being not elected, despotic and evil. I think that's James's conception, particularly because recently he, he tweeted out something to do with someone saying about the ruling overlords al alluding to um, something anti-Semitic. And then James <sighs> responded with, who, you mean this? And just had a photo of the crown. So I, I do think that a bit a bit like the American meme of, ha ah, you guys in Britbong land live, live under the king. You're not free at all. I think that might be his conception of monarchy versus... As we'll get onto later, I find him to be insufferable on Twitter. I, I, I think that would be a, a fair statement. He has dropped himself in it a, a little bit. So he's argued in this that English common law is America's primary philosophy and not Christianity. I would say that liberalism, and, and Karl makes this argument later, is an abstraction of the Christian uh, entitlement to fair protections of Englishmen. That's what the American founders were. So I think you can have liberalism, but not without Christianity. And James has also disagree because he says he's technically agnostic and that he said he's fine with practicing christians and that the pulpit should be more political so he has some inconsistent statements here as, as we'll, we'll get on to later but 
Uh, he also questions these sort of softer definitions of Christian nationalism from William Wolfe, not Stephen Wolfe, because he asks what churches will get a seat at the table? And he cites the Mormons and the, the drag queen supporting Presbyterians and says, how do you determine what a true Christian is? And the concept of gatekeeping will, will come up shortly. So he also makes a, another case, multiple cases, against Christian nationalism. So if we can let him speak for himself, please. It's to me very clear that, you know, you've got this label stuck on you by the left. We know that the left has cultural hegemony in this country. Mm -hmm. In fact, they have the Department of Justice basically yeah. under their 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 mm -hmm. umbrella. And we know that the Department of Justice and the FBI are extremely concerned with this so-called rise of white nationalist extremism and all of this nonsense, which they are tying to so-called Christian nationalist extremism. And so people like you are going to get labeled under these kind of more extreme views when they're playing this multi-definition game. And I think that the left has set a trap to get people to get conservative Christians to feel desperate enough to kind of say, you know what, I woke up yesterday, finally, I'm angry, and I'm going to put my foot down and assert myself, and we're just going to do it this way. And they think that they can reclaim, to, to be as generous to them as possible, they think they can reclaim this term. Even if we step away from the idea of Stephen's very kind of strident Christian nationalism, look at William's kind of more soft form that he's kind of pushing, a little more vague and ambiguous form, where well, no, we're going to use Christianity to inform the laws. We're going to use Christianity to inform politicians. This is the kind of thing that he's saying. We're going to have a seat at the table. Again, I ask. Which government commission are you going to set up to decide which faiths get to come in and inform? Do the Mormons get to come in and inform? You know, do the woke Mormons versus the kind of more conservative Mormons, which ones are allowed at the table, which ones aren't? Does the Presbyterian church that has the drag queen preaching from the pulpit, are they allowed to come? Why or why not? Which government agency are you setting up to decide which faith is legitimate and which faith isn't? And what do you do with people who aren't? These are our questions. But what I feel like is that even these people that have this kind of vaguer, softer definition of what Christian nationalism might represent, even to the point where it's just what you were describing for yourself, um, I feel like the the problem is that the the most hardcore pressing definition is going to get stuck on all of them. And we're going to see something very much like January 6th all over again. And where there's going to be this kind of wide dragnet for Christians who have publicly admitted, yeah, I'm a Christian nationalist. And they're all going to get labeled as extremists by an angry Department of Justice after some kind of an event. Maybe it's something like Charlottesville again. Maybe it's something like J6 again. And then all of a sudden there's this, we need to fix the Christian nationalist extremist, white nationalist extremist, because they're going to get mixed together. And Stephen's not helping that. He had his very controversial tweet the other day where he said, you know, that whatever he meant by it, he said that the white evangelical block is the only thing that can save yeah. America. You know that what's going to happen is that, that the left is going to seize. So what's happened there is I, I, he has made his first accusation that, that Stephen Wolf is a white nationalist, and he will go on to do that repeatedly in his Two Wolves Christian Nationalism podcast. Yeah, I, I will say that his statements where he consistently says that, oh, the establishment will see Christian nationalism as white nationalism. He's, he says it like that, and maybe they do, but it comes very clear later on when he just outright says that he thinks it's a form of white nationalism well, he's, to an he, extent. He later says in the same podcast that he believed at one point in time that that's exactly what that was, and it stopped him from going to a speaking engagement with Peter Bogosian. So he fell for that trap. And he also says later in this podcast... He doesn't really seem to have given any indication to me that he's left that. that opinion. And also, he keeps going on about... This is what he's going on about on Twitter when he's... Can we go to that tweet, actually? Yeah, when he's, more, when he's more absolutely spurging out on Twitter. When he constantly goes on about, yeah, it's a trap, oh, they're going to get you to do some form of January 6th, Charlottesville's part two. 
I don't see any indication that anybody who considers themselves a Christian, a Christian nationalist is trying to organize some kind of violent movement or organize some kind of violent, um, violent protest. Maybe you can, well, maybe you can correct me on that. I know you said that Stephen, Stephen Wolf's book, book does have an entire chapter dedicated to what a righteous revolution would constitute. And at one point he does say, and I'm going to paraphrase him here, I could bring the quote up in a second, but it is quite long. Mm -hmm. um, that if a violent revolution were to happen by America's enemies, which is looking increasingly likely because the likes of Antifa are fighting in the streets, then it could be reconstituted and bent back towards a more wholesome revival of the American spirit and create it into a Christian nation. So even if the Christian nationalists didn't wage a revolution, one, they would be justified in doing so against a culture that hated them or a, t a king that became tyrannical in the sort of evolving conception of if he doesn't embody the solar principle, then he's not the solar king and therefore he is mm. right to be deposed. But also, if a revolution is being waged, as is kind of in the spirit of America, I'm not fed posting, don't worry, and Antifa <laughs> try and overthrow the government, well, you're right to fight back against Antifa and use the levelled playing field of the oligarchy and Antifa being gone to build a, a more preferable Christian nation. So it's not that he's calling directly for revolution right now, but he's saying it would be justified if it were to happen. Well, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, James Lindsay would be right that, yeah, if there was any sort of Charlottesville 2.0, January 6th 2.0 type situation, then that will help to completely crush any vestige yep. of the right, because obviously all of the institutions are already uh, guns out against the right, and they want to look for any opportunity to be able to smear them all as being white nationalists, Nazis, extremists, etc., etc. Uh, I just don't see any, other than that one chapter from Stephen Wolfe, which seems more like an abstract hypothetical from the way that you're describing it there, I don't see any indication that Marjorie Taylor Greene no. or anybody else who's considering themselves a Christian, Christian nationalist is saying, we need to get pitchforks out of the White well, House. Greene is actually a great example because they tried to get her on a sort of sedition insurrection law, and it's on the state level because of her endorsement of January 6th as as the next 9-11 or whatever it was. And and so they're going to do this anyway. So James actually said in that podcast, we've got to be careful about what the left to do because we are in a war and we have to be strategic. Point is, he's pointing out here that the Department of Justice are going to try and crack down on the political opposition. And symbi symbiotically, he's both right and it's already happening. So you're behind the ball on this. So if we go to a few examples, well, number number oh, yeah. one, um, the FBI had an internal memo leak. This was Kyle Serafin, who was the mm -hmm. whistleblower, that said that traditional radical traditionalist Catholics are white nationalists. And this was actually based on this article from The Atlantic. Well, uh, <laughs> let's see what they think of radical. Go on, go on to the next one, please, John. The rosary is an extremist symbol. This is, this is the gradation of pathetic these people are getting mm -hmm. to. They're going to do it anyway. It doesn't matter if you think that Stephen Wolfe is fed posting. They're already saying that you as a practicing Catholic are a threat to democracy. They mean they're multicultural oligarchy. Well, I don't know if you're going to get to it, but I know I sent you a particular article. I forget which website. Is this the review of... It's from... I yeah, have. there was a... The, uh, okay, oh, we'll get to it when we get to it. Yes, yeah, so this is coming up soon. And, and then we go on to this New Yorker piece, and they're... Tying it into January 6th, they're saying Christian nationalism started in January 6th. So, again, they're trying to smear everyone. 
but listen to their definition of Christian nationalism because it's very moderate. So it's going to happen no matter how radical your definition is. There is no canonical manifesto of Christian nationalism. Stephen Wolfe would be very upset to hear that. And no single definition. In search of rigour, a pair of sociologists, Andrew L. Whitehead and Samuel L. Perry, examined data from various surveys and tracked the replies to six propositions. One, the federal government should declare the United States a Christian nation. Two, the federal government should advocate Christian values. Three, the federal government should enforce strict separation of church and state. Four, the federal government should allow the display of religious symbols in public spaces. Five, the success of the United States is part of God's plan. And six, the federal government should allow prayer in schools. None of that is about revolutionary overthrow. None no. of that is about theocracy. It doesn't even mention the prince concept Stephen Wolfe has in there. It's just saying that America is a Bible-believing Christian nation and its laws should reflect the majority faith of the country. I mean, that bit at the end about allowing prayers in schools is just repealing something that happened as recently as the 1960s. Exactly. So it's rolling back what I would argue is Which an unconstitutional Which the devout law. Christian Martin Luther King Jr. was a big supporter of the pulling back of Christian prayer in schools. Yeah, well, his plagiarised doctoral thesis denied the incarnation of Christ, yeah. so I wouldn't say that he is actually a Christian. So all of these things are very tepid, and yet they're being mischaracterised anyway. So no matter what you advance as a Christian or a Christian nationalist or a patriot, you're going to get smeared because the leftists know that the smear will stick with some normies. And unfortunately, James Lindsay's playing into their hands and giving credence the ability to mischaracterize the opposition by mischaracterizing them. And, and it's as, not helpful. As far as I'm concerned, to the regime, if you are white, you are considered an enemy. If you are white and you don't bow down to all of the pressure of intersectionality, then you are considered a threat. Yeah, of course, because you can think for yourself and you're not going to be involuntarily politicised by racial collectives and become a government dependent. If, if you just want to grill, you're a security threat. Exactly. Uh, so Lindsay conceives that during Pride, which is this month, because the liturgical calendar of the rainbow has fallen on us, he says that there's a preview of political warfare that's coming. Pride versus homophobic Christian nationalism will be a big theme. This unconventional warfare narrative, ICBM, has already been launched, so you should start preparing now. If you just scroll down... Can we John, scroll down to this diagram? What on earth is this? <laughs> very... I, I will put it this here way. Is, here it's basically, is my silly spring. Watch it go down the stairs. It's basically imperceptible to, to people that aren't very plugged into online discourse what? so framing it is not very helpful in this way how is this any form of conception of how to understand politics i mean honestly I think vertical it's... dialectical movement of the whole part shift strategic this is this might as well be egyptian hieroglyphics to me yeah it's it's not very decipherable this this is your brain when you hear about carl schmidt and you just go oh he was an evil nazi i understand politics better than carl schmidt oh. So, so James's argument is that something like Drag Floyd is going to happen, where they're going to have a violent clash between <laughs> drag activists and Proud Boys, or whatever particular group that decide to demonise today, which are half feds anyway. And so someone will die, and then this will be the instigating moment that they can use to crack down on white Christian nationalism. Uh, the the, the I issue just, is... I just got to say it right. Sorry. Okay, like... This is friend-enemy, okay? No matter what you do, you are an enemy and they will use it against you. Since this, you don't need to worry about violence because uh, trans-identified people have already gone and committed acts of violence, including shooting up a Christian school, and the entire mainstream media faculty just decided that what they wanted to focus on was, think of the poor, innocent trans people. Did they really need to execute that amount of force against the shooter? They only fi they fired 30 bullets. That seems excessive. Was this police shooter uh, motivated by transphobia? Those are the di uh, dialectic that they decided to move 
onto, primarily because they saw it as friend. Now, the whole argument of maybe they'll be putting away, the woke away is because this is so obviously transparent and such a optical loss for the regime as far as normal people go when you hear about a trans person going and shooting up a school and then the entire regime w uh, moves in lockstep to forgive this person and try and obfuscate it and try and move on everybody can see very clearly hold up there's something going on here. So the whole idea of the putting the woke away might be because of the fact that they're switching too many people on and allowing them to form an effective political coalition that can serve as opposition. But this does not explain any of that. This is him saying like, oh, well, they'll just get Christians to be violent. It doesn't matter if they're violent or not. They don't care. They will excuse violence if they see it in their interest. This also, much like the long arc bending towards justice, implies a unidirectional travel for political discourse, whereas we do have ability to manoeuvre. And I think James using new discourse is creating a lexicon of unpacking leftist dialogue should understand this a little better. And we'll get onto his thoughts on the shooting later, because he has some which aren't, aren't great. Uh, as you raised... The, the point is here, no matter if there is a drag Floyd, they're going to smear you anyway. And they smeared you, James, in a review of your recent book, Race Marxism. This is a quote you sent me. Let's take a moment to fully comprehend what Lindsay is saying here, that critics of racism who think and talk about the way that racial biases work in society are scapegoating white people in the same way Hitler did to the Jews of Germany, simply by identifying white people as having benefited from racism. If critical race theory is left unchecked, white people might have their property seized and find themselves abolished, presumably through violence. This is a hell of a thing to say without concrete evidence, and ironically, it holds disturbing echoes of the white genocide conspiracy theory espoused by actual Nazis. They called you a Nazi too, James. Like, you, you should know by now, they're going to do that anyway because it's a useful cudgel to hit you with over the head to unaware normies and default liberals. You actually put anti-communist in your Twitter bio, which, to the left, in the dialectic of the post-war consensus, means that you are a fascist. Yes. And they will always label you as such until you start kissing the ring of Karl Marx and all of the other idols, and still you start swearing allegiance, pledging your allegiance to the nation of George Floyd, you will only ever be an enemy to them. In fact, it turns out if you maintain on point and discuss things in a calm and factual manner, you can actually achieve a lot. For instance, Dinesh D'Souza, and I pointed this out to you, Dinesh D'Souza recently I saw posting about race and IQ stats, which right. just 30 years ago, he got somebody else essentially cancelled from his career for, San mm. Francis. Um, so this has come about because of the fact that you have had people talking about certain racial disparities in the US and going more for an actual factual data-driven understanding rather than ideological understanding of why these disparities come about, mainly in crime statistics. This has been put forward by people like Data Hazard, where even Elon Musk has been responding to this. I covered it on the podcast a few weeks ago. And it's very, very interesting that it turns out if you stay on message, if you don't communicate like a rabid bigot and instead put it forward like a reasonable person, you can change elements of the dialectic now that Elon Musk is allowing a bit more freedom to discuss things on Twitter, even though I will admit he is not perfect in the slightest no. when it comes to that. Uh, but he has allowed a broader range of discussion. So it turns out you can change people's minds if you engage with them in good faith and reasonably like a sane person. So this is, this is why I'm going to question whether or not James is concerned about optics, as he said, the anti-woke coalition being tarred with the reactionary Christian 
prince-favouring Stephen Wolfe brush, or if his problem is just with Christianity as someone who, speaking to Jordan Peterson in an episode that came out yesterday, said he regrets being part of the New Atheists, but still defined himself as atheist-agnostic. I wonder if it's a metaphysical rather than a tactical disagreement here. And, and I wanted to bring up this tweet, which is, if you scroll down, please, John, it says, both sides of the dialectic here are fully operationally prepared. The left will attack Christian nationalism by both na by name and rightly link it to homophobia and anti-LGBTQ hate. That group is excitedly proud of those features and will eagerly prove them right. Rightly link. Do you see the framing here? James agrees with the left's moral framework that the Christians are unfairly prejudicial against gay people. This is his belief. I would like to correct the record and say it's not LGBTQ plus hate. Number one, we agree that the TQ plus identities are an aberration from nature. They are biologically incorrect. They don't service the people that hold them. James would agree with that position, but it's not the LGB hate. It's the hate the sin, not the sinner approach of Jesus, who would turn around and say, well, that lifestyle might not be the best for you. You should possibly try and do something else if you can, if it is more social than quote-unquote born this way, because having a family is more wholesome, and the subculture of the gay community with a lot of drugs and promiscuity probably doesn't do anyone any favours. That's not hate, that's loving advice and a bit of tough love. So, the idea that James will frame this as hate means that he shares the left's moral judgement of Christians, which does mean that he is in a difficult position here as the friend-enemy distinction that you brought up earlier. Mm. I just want to just very, very quickly, they've not sent super chats in, but I just want to address yep. two things in the chat very quickly. First, Farm Janir said, the English tone and tenor is the most effective way to engage rhetorically. Thank you very much, <laughs> sir. And All Minus One has pointed out that there is a disconnect with how people on the internet and normies in real life communicate and understand these things. The normie on in real life is probably more less likely to engage with these subjects, even if you do engage in good faith. I actually disagree. I have spoken to people outside of political spheres who are beginning to notice this. A lot of people, mainly due to demographic change in the countries that they live in, especially in the West, are beginning to notice these things. They're beginning to notice that there is an increase in the amount of tragedies happening. I mean, we just had Nottingham yesterday. Was it yesterday or was it Wednesday? Things move so quickly. Yeah. Um, we've had Nottingham happen. We've had a lot of things happen. People, even normies, are beginning to notice. So I've found that if you do actually engage them in good faith, then some people are willing to listen. Now, you've also pointed out here, uh, unless they're in the higher IQ range. Now, obviously, if you're talking to an absolute bean who will just go with the mainstream media narrative no matter what, you're not going to get anywhere. But the fact of the matter is those people will always go with the mainstream media narrative no matter what. So if the mainstream media narrative turned around and told them that they needed to be the most fervent, rabid racists possible, it would maybe be a bit of disconnect for a few weeks, but eventually they'd come back around to it. Same way that they just went along in lockstep with COVID policies, even though just a few months before, if you told them that that was going to happen, they'd have called you a crazy conspiracy theorist. Um, so what you want to do is you want to find the a good group of people who you know are intelligent, that you know you can trust, and speak to them and engage with them in good faith. Because it's the Pareto principle, right? You want to get the 20% of good people on your side. The 80% will fall in line no matter what. Yeah, and also I, I don't want to say it's just a principle of IQ because clearly there's some substantive disagreement here between ourselves and James Lindsay. And yeah, I, I wouldn't call James Lindsay an idiot. Well, no, considering, uh, technically speaking, um, he has a PhD in math. So, so he must obviously be very smart. Yes, that. it's just I think he's philosophically misguided here. And one of the philosophically misguided parts is this tweet. If we go on to the next one, please. He's reposted... No, the tweet, please, John. Oh, yeah, he's yeah. reposted... If you scroll down, he this is this is before he went on Ali Ben Stuckey's podcast. Um, 
she said that the Tennessee shooting was an anti-Christian terrorist attack motivated... Uh, John, I'm trying to read that. An anti-Christian terrorist attack motivated by a pervasive, unabashed, top-down anti-Christian sentiment. And James said, uh-oh, and reposted the dialectical image in response to that. As he's if saying, that should explain anything. Well, he's saying, you're falling for the trap by saying that this person wanted to shoot Christians. And then he puts underneath it, don't do a Christian reaction. So James is saying, extricate your Christian values from your critique of wokeness, leaving only my liberal values as the one bulwark left. So he's saying, Christians, betray your convictions. I don't like that at all. Not not good. And so we get onto his mischaracterization of Stephen Wolf. This is in the Two Wolves podcast. And we're going to summarize this. He's he's far less charitable to Stephen Wolf than I think I am to both Wolves and James here. Um, he also says that atheists call your dumb asses out and that Wolf is living in Narnia, but he insists that he didn't mean to insult him, which I don't think is great. He complains about William Wolf's Christian nationalism, the sort of bottom-up, tepid version. He says, it's a much softer, death-by-a-thousand qualifications approach where you can never quite nail down what he's talking about. This is just going to somehow work. We're going to have a more Christian culture, and that's somehow going to make a more Christian national identity, and that's going to make a more Christian nation, and that's going to bleed into Christian churches, informing the civil government in a way that will somehow not violate the First Amendment. In that statement, replace Christian with liberal, and that's exactly what James wants. You have a more liberal culture, it's going to create a more liberal national identity, it's going to make a more liberal nation, that's going to bleed into government institutions, it's going to inform the government in a way that won't violate the First Amendment, that won't that won't dispense with the freedom of religion by making atheism the mainstream thing. So, again, it just seems like James has a problem with Christianity, and I'm hoping he can correct the record on this if he does want to chat to us, but it seems like he's not questioning his own presuppositions while attacking the other one. And then, as you've already said, he accuses William Wolfe and Stephen Wolfe of using Mott and Bailey tactics as if they're in some kind of conspiratorial correspondence where William Wolfe puts forward a softer argument, but Stephen Wolfe puts forward a more harsh one. I think one. it's just that they disagree on things. It's probably an internal conversation within the right, but he calls, and this is a quote, Christian nationalism is literally a postmodernist doctrine. No, James. I'm shocked he didn't call it Gnostic. We'll get onto that uh, in another <laughs> podcast. Uh, he then spends a long time comparing Stephen Wolfe to Mao. When Christian... That's his other favourite thing to do. Well, yeah, so so Stephen Wolfe said the purpose of Christian nationalism is to frown on and suppress moral deviancy. And so he says, I'm not saying Stephen Wolfe is like Mao, but also that these are the exact reasons that Mao gave, and this is exactly what Mao says. So... Not so you are saying he's like Mao? Yeah. He also got incredulous when Wolf said we live in a de facto gynocracy. And what he means by that is it's the privileging of equity and egalitarian principles over hierarchy, competition, but also compassion for the weak from a male perspective rather than the smothering mother I mean, perspective. Nietzsche was saying that in the 1800s about the uh, democratic mass herd man. So, I mean, people have been recognizing the values that we exist in in the West have for a very, very, very long time been much more orientated towards feminine urges rather than male urges. It's the it's the equivalent of the, the male urge is essentially the, that, that meme of the guy looking into the camera and it says, what are you doing? A man thinking of women. You should be thinking of war. That's the male urge. That's the masculine urge to go out, conquer and to forge justice. Speaking of war, he also says that uh, Stephen Wolfe is basically like Adolf Hitler because he, <laughs> he, he agrees with the concept of folk consciousness and then he goes on the tangent about black nationalism and he also admits that he hasn't read Wolfe's book. Now, if uh, he told Alec Beth Stuckey that he has better things to do involving communism, which, why would you then make a two-hour show about it, but but fine. Had he actually read Wolf's book up to page four, Wolf addresses the false flag we're going to get co-opted by the regime mm. concern in full. I quote, 
The term Christian nationalism is in our time a word of derision used against groups of white evangelical evangelicals and Pentecostals in America. Few agree on what it means, though all agree, whatever it means, it's most certainly bad. Indeed, it is bad, ultimately all that matters for all those who use it. It is a plastic word, to use Hugh Pokerson's expression. The precise meaning of plastic words cannot be discerned, but through context an author can be precise about which connotations the word is being used. Since anti-nationalism is a social dogma, connecting Christian and nationalism is effective for wielding social power or the public ire against dissident Christian groups, whether these groups are real or imagined. It's no surprise that Christian nationalism is used in the context of the 2021 riot at the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. Associating the term with a widely condemned event gives the accusation of Christian nationalism tremendous weight in rhetoric. This term has social rhetorical power. The connotation is far more useful than its possible uh, denotations. So, Stephen Wolfe is literally preaching to the choir here, doing the same thing that James Lindsay wants to do with liberalism, which is rescue it from what he believes is the Gnostic parasite, the postmodern, woke, intersectional doctrine that has captured liberalism. Stephen Wolfe wants to do the same things with extremists, either that are trying to mischaracterize Christian nationalism as an ethno-nationalist movement in the Department of Justice, or the extremists who will bring a drag queen into church. He's gatekeeping, and he's saying, no matter the mischaracterizations, I hold my faiths, and I'm not going to jettison them just because James Lindsay says I shouldn't have a, I should avoid having a Christian reaction to when a transgender person goes and shoots children. Yeah, it's a bit silly. As I mean, as far as I'm concerned, it, it, he's completely discredited the moment that he says, "Well, I've not read the book." I've, I don't I've, think that was wise. I've I will, not I read say. the book, but I'm going to critique it and call him a white nationalist for it anyway. He, he could, and it does for me. Reading back on something like cynical theories, it does somewhat discredit the, especially when we look at the kind of criticism that he's thrown at more right wing thinkers on Twitter, it discredits my trust. It makes me trust him less about the criticisms that he's had of left wing literature and what they are saying, because I just think to myself, okay, have you just picked out a few choice quotes here and there? Uh, that make it look really bad because I'm not saying that I think that thinkers like Foucault and no. people like that are incredible thinkers but there is a way to critique it while taking it in good faith and hearing him address these kinds of thinkers and right-wing thinkers in such bad faith just makes me think are you doing the same to left-wing thinkers and give not really giving them a fair shake? The insults were definitely needless and what else was needless if if he'd watched any of Stephen Wolf's interviews, if we go to this next one, I'm not sure if this American Moment podcast was out before he did the Two Walls podcast, mm. so I, I can't verify that. But I, I watched this, and Stephen Wolf actually clarifies some points that, that James Lindsay vicariously accused him of. He says he doesn't care if you do Christian nationalism or Christian federalism, meaning that he would be happy if the current federal government and the current structure were just more imbibed with Christian values and the president were authentically Christian, not just a king. He says, I still want a limited state. I am an American. And he was referring specifically to integralism, which some of the Catholics, traditional Catholics in America, would like to see the, the United States more allied with the Central Catholic Church overseas. He actually questioned whether or not that would create a dual loyalty problem. So, again, he's got problems with his Catholic... Uh, multi-faith, not multi-faith, multi-denomination coalition here. So I don't know how well his idea is going to work out, but he's not a totalizing fascist. Like, no, no James, of course he's not. not accurate. He also says in the book, I in the book, I separate ethnicity and ancestral origin because of the ethnogenesis into being American, which occurred prior to mass migration. Assimilation happens largely through intermarriage and the civic participation, which create, quote, common stories between people and engender solidarity. He's a civic nationalist. He's not an ethno-nationalist. You kept trying to accuse him of being an ethno-nationalist. He, he actually says, my Christian 
uh, Hispanic neighbours are more my countrymen than some atheist liberal. So he's got a very liberal opinion on how ideas can cross national boundaries. He just doesn't think that you can drop someone into the country tomorrow and they're immediately an American or a Christian. Like, that's just a sensible... He doesn't believe in universal men. That's just a sensible thing. Speaking of him hitting at some conservative philosophers... So, if you scroll down, please, John, on the left, um, Stephen Wolf's book is listed... Just keep going till you see it. Is listed... There it is. On the National Conservatism website. And this is run by uh, Yoram Hazoni, who I went to National Conservatism Conference. I've had drinks with his son, Hadar. He's a really nice fella. Uh, I believe you have his book, but we need to read it. I don't have his book, okay, but... Okay, we the, need to get a copy and discuss it at some the point. The article that James Lindsay, uh, a few months ago, from Chronicles by Paul Gottfried, insulted that said Marx was not woke was in direct response to Yoram Hazoni's book. So it's quite interesting that Gottfried posts an article responding to Yoram Hazoni, and then James Lindsay felt the need to just completely butt in with some pig-headed comments. So Hazoni has done a tweet thread here on James Lindsay and... Trying to explain what the F is going on. Yeah, and so the most interesting tweets here were, was tweet 19, which I'll read. James really believes that the woke left is correct when they say the political mobilisation of conservative Christians and Jews is motivated by homophobia oh, okay. and anti-LGBT hate. And then 22 and 23. What does James expect conservative Christians and Jews to do? James's answer is quite clear. What's going to happen this summer is that centrists, moderates and normies, this is a quote, are now going to move to the left in order to protect themselves. In other words, most people will follow James by moving to the left. On 27, James is presenting us... Christians and Jews with two options. Conservatives will either go quiet and cease all political organizing against the left, or they'll join the left in helping destroy conservative Christian influence in America. So, again, is it optical, or is it that James doesn't agree with Christianity and therefore thinks it will be an anchor dragging the anti-woke liberal movement back? Finally, he says... And he conf confirm, uh, compares in tw tweets 30 and 31 to Curtis Yarvin's essay, which is called You Can Only Lose the Culture War. Yarvin, I remember that one. Yarvin wasn't opposed to our winning, he just thought we'd fail. With James, it's a different story. He doesn't want conservative Christians and Jews to win, not in some states or some cities. He's with the woke on this one. And I'm inclined to agree, when in The Two Wolves of Christian Nationalism, I caught this. James said that anyone critiquing the 19th Amendment and proposing they repeal it, which is universal suffrage for women... He called them tarred cons, which just seems a little bit of a bad faith thing to do. <laughs> like, it's clever wordplay, don't be wrong, but again, uh, I, I think I've there's... Seen it done, I've seen it done better uh, when you ask for your trad wife and get your tarred wife yeah, instead. Yeah, <laughs> many such cases, I've experienced that before. And so, Hazoni finishes on tweet 34, he wants it so badly that he's constructed this whole dialectic to prove himself that it's about to happen. So he thinks that James has constructed the dialectic of there's going to be a drag Floyd to be a self-fulfilling prophecy to excise Christianity and hardline conservatives from the anti-woke coalition. I have seen some people, when I've criticised James Lindsay in the past, say that he's the only reason that we've not had drag Floyd. And I really do want to question that for a moment. So James Lindsay posting to people on Twitter, which does have a massive audience, yes, but he doesn't. it doesn't encompass the entirety of the West. Him posting, conservatives, don't go out and murder drag queens. For the love of God, don't do it. Is the only thing that's been holding back the bulwark. It's been the bulwark holding back the hundreds of thousands of crazed right-wingers who've just wanted to go and beat drag queens to death. Is that... Is that what's being insinuated I there? I don't think that's an accurate summary. Yeah, I don't think yeah. that that's what's happened. No. Although, so, obviously, don't do that. So, so Lindsay decided to respond, if we go to this tweet, um, and he just decided to call Hazoni the authoritarian right. So... 
he's he's not oh my god he wants to promote traditional values what are you some kind of fascist this is where this is where i really get a lot of reservations with Lindsay, and it's why i consider it that he once the woke is put away will immediately go back into considering us an enemy because he sees any sort of assertion whether used through state power or through social pressure or through any sort of non-statist means uh, any assertion of traditional values, anything that isn't his perfect idea of progress as some kind of fascism. He's very, very happy to throw those terms around at the right when it suits him, which is, does not seem to be a fantastic situation for a political ally. The reason, the reason that he's doing this, and he calls him authoritarian right, if we go on to the next one, if we open the image on this next tweet, please, John. Uh, fantastic, yeah. It's because Hazoni is not a liberal, and he critiques the fact that John Locke and John Stuart Mill are lumped in with conservative voices. Um, n noted, uh, John Stuart Mill was definitely not a conservative. He was a materialist utilitarian with a socialist feminist wife. He, he was a subversive. He classified himself as a socialist by the end of his life, if I remember correctly. Yeah, and, and John Locke was a liberal, but he also would not have wanted James Lindsay in the country, as we get on to later. So that's not <coughs> probably the best appeal whole... to make. His whole point behind On Liberty was essentially to excuse himself for promoting subversive attitudes in the Victorian era. Yeah. When he was a young man, he promoted sexual liberalism and other such things, which post-sexual revolution in the 1950s and 1960s have proven to be a complete disaster for the human race. He also, his defense of free speech was grounded on the fact that you can't be conceited to, enough to never know that you're certain unless you hear everyone's arguments which means that certain things are held up for debate that shouldn't be. For example, can children consent? And the second one was it's a utilitarian argument because he says that we we are we must be afraid of certainty because if we haven't heard all the arguments, we don't know if we're going to get to the most perfect answer, which abides by the long arc towards history bending towards justice argument rather than it being an inalienable right to you. It is you only speak in service of the collective apotheosis of humanity towards the progressive utopia. That's a fundamental distinction, disagreement of worldviews between folks like us, folks like Azoni, mm. and John Stuart Mill slash Lindsay. So if we if we go on to the next one, Lindsay decided to do another New Discourses podcast on post-liberalism left and right, and he spent the entire time reading quotes from Mao, again, and accusing Mao from being indistinguishable from Hazoni. So this is, this is interesting, because this was uh, May 29th, yes. which is a good few months after the discussion that he had with Carl, which I'm sure that you'll get to, yes. uh, wherein Carl explicitly described himself as a post-liberal. Yes. Interesting. Not, not great. Uh, he, he says the reason he compares them is because all post-liberal doctrines and Maoism, quote, require you to be a moral busybody caring about, quote, what adults do in their bedrooms, that is totalitarianism. It's quite literally the fall of Rome, but how does this affect you personally meme? If, if everyone's doing degenerate things in the privacy of their own home, we have no social bonds to each other, and so civilization will fall while everyone is cooing themselves to death, which is kind of what's happening. Not not great idea to be stratified. He then also argues that um, critical race theory has no connection to liberalism and is purely Marxism. I just wanted to plug an article quick that, that I did. It's the first one I ever did for the website. If we go on to this next one, please. Where the actual appeal to nebulous equality in the Constitution means that critical race theory has germinated in America for a specific reason. So it's not like liberalism bears no responsibility for the creation of intersectionality as a form of what he would call postmodern neo-Marxism. It's not just Marxism, it's within the liberal framework. So, to the heart of the issue then, just as a condensed version of history, is Lindsay right when he says that Christianity is not the founding ethos of America and actually the English common law and liberalism 
is the American project. Well, we have the mischaracterization of Christian nationalism by the likes of CNN here, and they say an imposter Christianity is threatening American democracy. The insurrection marked the first time many Americans realized the US is facing a burgeoning capital W white Christian nationalist movement. Here are three beliefs tied to white Christian nationalism. See how they sneak white in there? They're going to do it anyway, whether or not you identify as Christian nationalists. One, a belief that US was founded as a Christian nation. That's a myth, apparently. One of the most popular beliefs among white Christian nationalists... shocked to hear that. Well, they go on to describe that here, is that the US was founded as a Christian nation, the founding fathers were all orthodox, evangelical Christians, and that God has chosen the US for a special role in history. Many founding fathers weren't. Virtually none of them could be classified as evangelical Christians. I They're- don't think anybody was making that argument. They were deists, yep. a lot of them were. Yes, and also it was founded as a Puritan colony, but we'll get onto that shortly. There were a collection of atheists, Unitarians, deists, and liberal Protestants and other denominations. The other denominations part is just sneaked in there. They, yep. list, they list all of the most permissive ones, and then, yeah. The Constitution says nothing about God, the Bible, or the Ten Commandments, says Philip Gorski, a sociologist at Yale University and co-author of The Flag and the Cross, White Christian Nationalism and the Threat to American Democracy, someone very impartial, and saying the US was founded as a Christian nation ignores the fact that much of its initial wealth was derived from slave labor and stolen land from the Native Americans. So, well done for ascribing an original sin from the position of an atheist. So, was the US a Christian nation? Well, this is the first sermon that was given by its founder of the Massachusetts colony, and he literally calls it a model of Christian charity, and says that people are hierarchically arranged by predisposition of their natural talents into boxes of rich and poor. God Almighty in his most holy and wise providence hath so disposed of the condition of mankind as in all times that some must be rich, some poor, some high, and some eminent in power and dignity, others mean and in submission. And because of that natural reality, we have to create a social order by which the people that are capable of generating more wealth, of manifesting more virtue, should be charitable and benevolent towards those that are struggling. They shouldn't just morally uh, crush them. This is the precepts of the moral law. And he finishes with this famous phrase, we shall find that the God of Israel is among us when ten of us shall be able to resist a thousand of our enemies, when he shall make us a a praise and glory that all men shall say of succeeding plantations, the Lord make it likely that of New England. For we must consider that we shall be a city upon a hill, the eyes of all people are upon us. So the American project was to basically construct a new Jerusalem, a shining city of the example of God, from its inception of the colonies well before it was even a unified nation. We'll probably get onto this, but this sort of historical revisionism that's been happening for a very long time, that the America was just founded on these incredibly neutral principles because they didn't want there to be any sort of religious domination, they didn't believe in the Christian domination of uh, America, all, all of this, they, all they wanted to do was just come over and make a better life for themselves. Uh, Well, that's partially true, that they wanted to make a better life for themselves, but why was it that they had a worse-off life in England in the first place? Why? It's because most of them were being persecuted for their particular denomination of Christianity. So it's a place for lots of um, the more puritanical elements of Christianity in the 1600s to come and escape to so that they could uh, practice their religion um, in the way that they wanted to. And alongside that, yes, they had more opportunities, they had economic opportunities, To a certain extent, I mean, uprooting your entire life, going across half of the world on a boat journey that you're not guaranteed that you're going to live through, uh, purely for the sake of having maybe a bit of farmland and also having to fend off who knows how many tribes of natives who are going to be coming to kill you so they can reclaim your land, doesn't sound like 
the most easygoing lifestyle to me. So perhaps it was more religiously motivated in a lot of those people as well. Yeah, they didn't know it was a Goldilocks resource deposit before they went over a set-up shack. and, and It was really lucky for them that it turned out to be. Yeah, lots of them got captured by native tribes that scalped and ate them. So it wasn't all just a liberal utopia. If we go on to the next one, as you've already alluded to, this is the, the idea that the Constitution was made for a moral and religious people. Obviously, this is the this is the famous John Adams quote. Our constitution was made for a moral and religious people. It's wholly inadequate to the government of any other. If we go on to this next one, because of course CNN has been relying on staggering ignorance of people as to whether or not, if you picked up on what they said there, there is no mention of God or the Ten Commandments in the constitution. Interesting. Um, it's referenced in every single state constitution, by the way. So God or the Divine is mentioned at least once in each of the 50 state constitutions, nearly 200 times overall. Most state constitutions, 34 of them, reference God more than once. And the Declaration of Independence... <laughs> Imagine omitting that from your considerate... Go on to the next one, please, John. I know, I know this is this is redundant at this point, but when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one per people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to this separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their capital C creator, with certain inalienable rights, among those life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The founding document of America references God and the capital C creator. But oh no, it was never a Christian nation. We can we can loop all the way back around to Locke, and I think Lindsay would actually agree with this as well. Locke wasn't too keen on atheism. <laughs> In the letter concerning toleration, those are not at all to be tolerated who deny the capital B being of God, promises, covenants, and oaths, which are the bonds of humane society. They can have no hold upon an atheist. So Locke, the the person whose ideas inspired the founding fathers, didn't even want atheism in his liberal society because he saw Christianity as the prerequisite to make liberalism work. Who gave you those self-evident rights? They're not self-evident unless you attribute them to a metaphysical source. Otherwise, they're just conventions of agreement and you get the intersectional ideologues just arguing, well, this is a faster route to freedom and material prosperity. Communism. And next thing you know, you're in a gulag. Well, I mean, I just want to say as well, Locke has some issues within the logic that he uses in, say, the second treatise of government for instance his famous idea that within the state of nature god endows you with particular rights and then you give up some of those rights so that you can form a coalition with other people so that you're able to live in a peaceful society begs the question why would god if he intended for everybody to live in societies in the first place if that's the best and most natural way for human beings to live why would he endow them with certain rights that they then have to give up a portion of them whereas actually the, the patriarch by robert filmer who is, which is what Locke was responding to in his second treatise, uh, basically says, God is the ultimate patriarch. God endows the king with certain rights and duties that he needs to endow upon the rest of God's people, and the king acts as God's patriarch in our mortal earth, and everybody else is subsumed to that authority. From purely logical standpoint, makes a lot more sense. That, that seems to be what Stephen Wolfe is arguing for, and again, if you can't really reconcile that with Christian denominations, it's probably not going to work, but it does work within the framework of anti-liberal Christianity. It's it's logically causal. So if we can go to the next one, it's just the CNN article again. This is the last two things they're winding out. Um, one of the myths is they believe in a warrior Christ, so they read the book of Revelation rather than your fan fiction. Yes, they are actually Christians, and there's a belief that su there's such a person as a real American 
So the people that want to demonize this are openly seditious in that they want to flood America with a dependent voter class and they want to make citizenship redundant. Again, James, you're kind of parroting the narratives which serve the dissolution of the country, and I know you, you don't want that. So the left are always lying. They're always going to lie. We can gatekeep our beliefs, whether it's liberalism or Christianity, to an effective degree. Is it that James is just worried about the overall use of state power? Well, I would refer him to this famous Stone Toss comic, I know it may not be the most <laughs> academic of arguments, but if we use the government, how will we stop people from using it against us? We are metaphorically already on our knees with a gun to our head. There's basically nothing to lose at this point other than just be unapologetic and, and not play by their framework. And so to lean into his paradox of power for the last few minutes before I wrap up, if we go to this next one, Lindsay's predicting in this tweet thread that Christian nationalism will uh, achieve some sort of church capture if operation christian nationalism succeeds and it probably will at least in part the future of the american church and the destruction of small independent unaffiliated churches so that the remaining church is wholly subsidiary to captured institutions and associations so he's saying that a church apparatus that is central will be more liable to capture by marxist subverters than the dissoluted less centralized liberal culture now, I think both have been captured at once, and in my opinion, a more centralised apparatus is an easier target to recapture, particularly if it has a codified set of ethics that it's strayed from. For example, the current Catholic Church is occupied by an open Marxist who is preaching liberation theology, which was created by the KGB to subvert the church in the 1960s. And the Church of England's not doing much better either. The Church of England is dreadful and appointed by a man who I will not say anything about in case it's considered libel. Anyway, point being, if you infiltrate these institutions and gradually overthrow them, that's an easier way to reconstitute the culture. And I think that's a better understanding of how power works. Whereas liberalism's inability to put forward a normative, reconstitutive ethic, a sort of hands-off approach to morality and just have a permissive governance structure is more of a weakness at a time where you're trying to existentially defend yourself against a subversing force like intersectionality. And so I, I, I don't think it's I don't think it's a, a solid point to make mm. here that the church is more liable to capture than liberalism. Uh, just before we go any further, I'm just going to say we're probably going to have to wrap this up soon and turn it into yes. a part two because my, se my section is going to go on far, far longer than we actually have time for yep. right now. So we'll finish up your section and then we already have one super chat from Neo Unrealist. Thank hey, you for sending that in. Um, um, so if any of you do want to ask questions while we've still got time before we have to wrap this up at around five o'clock, please send in some super chats now if you feel like donating to us. No pressure. Just if you feel like having a question answered or if you have something that you'd like to say to us, you can feel free to send that in now. Fantastic. Thank you very much. So also just a quick point as well. The less uh, centralized denominations of Christianity like the Lutherans or the Presbyterians or what's the one that bloody Tucker Carlson's part of is it episcopalian episcopalian that's it. Yeah, they're, they're all not, of the denominations confused they're, they're not um less liable to capture either just because they don't have as much of a centralized apparatus mainly because protestantism the original postmodernism, in my opinion which is why it came from germany makes each independent person the legislator of what the biblical interpretation is so devolving it to to the individual and having absolutely no hierarchy means that all you need to do is have the woke mind virus infect everyone, as it slowly is, and you've lost that anyway. So, so this argument that a hierarchical church is the most liable to capture just isn't quite correct. It's it's just gonna just gonna do it either way. I think it's actually easier to have an organizing principle like that. And I think that James understands that the ability to gatekeep your beliefs is there. Because if we go on to this chat that he had with Carl a little while ago. He talks about the rooting out of the Gnostic woke parasite from liberalism. So he's saying we should do the same thing just for liberalism specifically. Let's let James speak. 
what we're dealing with, whether we call it communism or neo-communism or Marxism or this kind of legacy of Marxism or woke or the kind of weird fascist thing that they built at the World Economic Forum in the United Nations out of all of this um, and are applying it to us. I called it a parasite, a liberal parasite. And I think that a lot of the post-liberal movement thinks that this is the culmination of liberalism, whereas I think it is a parasite that has take that it's latched onto the side of liberal uh, of liberal philosophy and, and and societal organization, and is basically taking control of the ship. It's like that beetle that went viral the other day with the parasites. It has no body left. It's just the out the outer carapace of the beetle walking around, literally like a janky beetle, but there's no bot like the. The, the thing's not even just dead. It doesn't even have a body anymore. It's been eaten literally apart from the inside. And uh, I feel like that we have a, a liberal a parasite on liberalism rather than a uh, coming to fruit of what liberalism was always intended or, or likely to. The philosophy has to be clarified and updated. We have to figure out what liberalism actually was intending to achieve, therefore clear it up, and then at the same time destroy this beast that's, I mean, I use that in, in the biblical sense, um, this beast that's consuming freedom and humanity, uh, not even civilization, screw civilization, it's, it's consuming humanity. So he recognizes the ability to parcel out the values that he holds dear to the captured institutional version, aka the Department of Justice's mischaracterization of Christian nationalism versus Christianity and patriotism as articulated by the softer core Christian nationalists. So why can't they do that, but he can with liberalism? I think it's just a hostility to Christianity. I don't I don't want to mischaracterize. Again, I'm more than happy to have a, have a chat with James. He's got an open invite. But it doesn't seem sincere that you're just worried about optics when you extend the the ability to clean up the doctrine, as has been polluted, for your preferred prescription but not mine. Doesn't really seem that honest, personally. And he acknowledges Christian's ability to do this, because he, he did a tweet saying, it's not possible to be a Christian and love the Q, queer in LGBTQ, which describes the political orientation of pure negation and self-interest. You can love the people captured by queer Gnosticism, but not queer Gnosticism. Now, I will say that the TQ may actually be an apt comparison for Gnosticism, we're going to talk about this later, because it does conceive of the world as a fleshy prison imposed upon the internal, authentic, gendered soul self, and that augmenting your body to be in line with the interior experience is a kind of liberation theology, up until the point of where, even if that doesn't work, you can escape the material realm by exiting it swiftly with a short drop on a sudden stop, and that's a form of martyrdom. It's actually an apt comparison. So if you can recognise the ability for Christians to say, actually, that isn't in line with our doctrine, to say that God got my body wrong is blasphemous, then why can't we do that with all of the other things that you accuse us as doing, like you can with liberalism? It's not fair. I, 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 that's, that's, all, uh, that's all very true. I will also just say on this, um, while we're quickly on the LGBTQ thing, James is very eager to push the separation of the T and the Q from the LGB, which um, I'm going to be doing something much larger as a full piece of work for the website for, mm -hmm. so 
uh, hold out for that as it may it may come sooner it may come a bit later it's a lot of research that i've been doing for it but if you actually examine the history of that particular movement the t and the q were part of it from the very beginning from its origins as a political movement in the 1950s and 1960s but instead in the 1980s and 1990s the movement went through a bit of a pr facelift and excised those parts of it for though for the time being at that point before it's eventually wrapped back around to including those for instance harry hayes who was one of the founders of the mattachine society one of the original gay rights organizations was very clear that he wanted it to be so that gay rights and gay identity was from the very beginning an upending of moral and sexual norms as they were understood in christian america at that time he wanted it to turn into the movement that it is right now he was also a big supporter for his entire life ever since they were or, uh, founded in the late 1970s, a big supporter of Nambla, uh, but that's neither here or there. I'll get a bit more into that when we get to that particular uh, video series that I will be doing. Yeah, and, and so if James wants to engage in adequate gatekeeping for the LGB as well, if he believes that's true, then it must be possible with Christianity, unless, of course, he has an unfair prejudice specifically against Christianity. And I did some of this gatekeeping with, of all people, the arch-atheist Carl on our website, <laughs> where I sat down and autistically for an hour and a half proved that Jesus Christ is not a socialist and so cannot be co-opted by this. So I, in the spirit of James, am separating out Christianity from the socialist parasite that he believes has been grafted onto liberalism so james himself tries to do this a bit with christianity let's play this next clip please it's that we're not god and so how do we determine questions of things like political authority who gets it well the liberal answer in my opinion is well nobody nobody deserves it so now we come up with a scheme to lend it to people with the consent of the people being governed etc divided powers and all this so I, I i keep coming back to this and like christians tend to get pissed at me because i'm like to stealing their Christian heritage of the nation or whatever, but I actually think the fundamental assumption of this kind of broadly successful liberal project is you're not God and you don't get to be God. And in fact, that's true for everybody. So you end up getting, you know, kind of a, we don't have obvious like physical equality. Like some people are better at stuff, et cetera, or some people are bigger, some people are stronger, some people are stupid, some people are whatever. We don't have that. But we, it, in terms of what it means to have fundamental human dignity, there's a there's a fundamental basis of equality because only God, in some sense, has the authority to judge what somebody's human worth is. And since it's not, it doesn't matter if God exists or not. All you have to say is none of us is that. So who has the authority? And so what the whole liberal project does is it open for me is to open the door to start trying to figure out how do we solve actual practical political problems under the assumption that none of us gets to play God over anybody else. And it's not more complicated than that. Uh, everything else is, is details that, that flow downstream from this. Um, assumptions like the blank slate and things are just Pause frankly there, idiotic. Uh, so, so the issue is, notice what he does there. He says a bunch of, of axioms which rely on Christian presuppositions, such as the inherent equal moral capacity of people, uh, even though you are born disparate in your abilities, you are born equal in expressing your, your morality and being able to be judged for it. And then he just says, it doesn't matter if God exists or not. It kind of does, it, it really does, because if these rights are self-evident, as codified in the Declaration of Independence, as codified in Lockean liberalism, which he wishes to rescue, despite the blank slate and the state of nature being wrong, if he wants to find out what is right about liberalism and hangs on to those things, why are they self-evident? 
Why did they need to be articulated if they were self-evident? Because without a creator, who made them self-evident? I mean, this was one of the problems that led me away from the natural rights libertarianism that I had fallen into mm. around August, September of last year was actually discussing this with, of all people, our editor Rory, who's um, always a, a very deep thinker yes. on such things. And uh, the not particularly deep question he asked me was, okay, who's giving these natural rights then? And I went, uh, uh, well, uh, um, it's, yep. uh, it's um, uh, naturally deduced from the laws of nature. What laws of nature? Uh, 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 okay, so who's underpinning all of this? Yeah. And you don't really have an answer for that unless you have a theological backing for it. Because if you say, well, I've deduced them from the ground up, I've just observed the physical world around me and deduced them, all it takes for somebody to disagree is to say, well, I, de I deduced other things. And then it turns into an argument of whose chain of logic is more accurate. And at the end of the day, what you're talking about in a very Heightian sort of way is you are talking about conclusions that you've already come to from a gut instinct that you are post hoc coming up with this chain of logic for, when reasonably, unless you are able to rhetorically appeal to somebody else's emotional uh, emotions, uh, you're not going to be able to reason them using a superior chain of logic. Aha, well, I've decided that if you observe the way that humans behave in the state of nature, that they behave in this particular way, this means that this law should be implemented because it adheres more to natural law. That's you're not going to convince anybody. Whereas if you, if we were in a more religious time, you kick down the door and says, the word of God is such and such, and he will not be contradicted. That really appeals to people's emotions. True. And religious feelings. It's, it's also the fact that if you take God out of the gaps, then everything is a preference that you are trying to assert would be a more optimum organizing principle to for man to agree on as a convention it's like david hume's atheist skepticism he thinks that laws themselves are not artificial but they are artifices so they're created by human beings linked to our nature nature springing from where exactly david but but fine and so we need to follow these conventions and agreements to maximally order property so that it 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 means that we've got the most peaceful society. The problem is, if technology advances up until the point where communism becomes viable, then if you're in a war of competing preferences, if you're asserting the inalienable right of property, and they're saying, well, we can we can just facilitate it with Aaron Bastani's fully automated luxury communism, and this has brought Marx's arguments to fruition, and this is why we can shoot you in the revolution, then you're engaging in the war of all against all, and you're just hoping you're going to win, rather than being able to mediate it with dialogue, which is actually a principle that James holds, and is one of the criticisms that Schmidt would have of liberalism, is that, well, while these two competing factions are getting ready to acknowledge that they have irreconcilable differences, and will defend their ideas, then you're standing in the middle of the road, ready to get run over, trying to shout stop, when dialogue is going to do nothing. And that's part of the issue. You're, James isn't going to alleviate the war of all against all by pulling out the Jenga block of God at the base of his moral foundations and thinking that there's nothing left. And I wanted to finish on this clip, and you're right, we'll have to make a part two. I, yes, I apologise, we've banded back and forth a bit, no, that's why. No, no, it's been an interesting discussion so far, and those watching on Rumble, I hope you've been enjoying it, and I hope you understand where Connor is coming from. It looks like most of my contributions will have to be left till the part two, but I think I've contributed some decent stuff here. Well, absolutely loads. This Thank is you. why I wanted to have you as the, as the second chair, mate. Um, the last one is that, ironically, James does rely on Christian values, and this is something that Benjamin and Carl, Benjamin, had to talk to him about, and yet he's gone on from this conversation not having taken those criticisms on board. Let's play the final clip, please. A brief interjection. It's not just be... the uh, export of the ideas, but it's the virtues, too. Uh, you can't just have liberal but ideas without is, some sort of where, Christian where the, where... virtue. 
Well, I don't know that it has to necessarily be. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to say it has to be a Christian humility, virtue. patience. Every time that you guys bring up a virtue, it's a Christian virtue. Every single yeah, virtue but, that you guys give up uh, is canonized. Yes, but those, right? I so, would also uh, that's go further and say that this isn't contingent either. I'd say that Christianity codified those virtues extraordinarily well in a cohesive system that's yeah. uh, extremely pro-social. But these, I think, again, Aristotle wasn't a Christian. These are human virtues. No, but the These Christians are, were very influenced by Aristotle. Well, of course they were. So, of course they were. You know, yes. they, they took that from him. He didn't take that from them. So, so just as a quick interjection, because I find this fascinating, because I wonder if this isn't the cultural difference between me as an Englishman and you as Americans, right? Because, um, <laughs> no, no, and I, I'm, I'm serious about this, because Americans do have a habit of seeing themselves as universal men, because America is, of course, the most successful project of liberalism, and it's done phenomenally well. Because historically, it was very rooted in the English tradition of liberalism, which is, as Oakeshott put it, just a distillation of English political practice into mm -hmm. theory. But of course, mm -hmm. if you've got a bunch of people who have been born and raised as Englishmen and then calling themselves Americans, but still having the common law, still having these values of accountability and justice and political de decentralization and all of the traditional values of England just re replicated on the American continent, um, then... It makes sense that that would work because, of course, to the people, and this goes down to the very like the way the language is constructed, the kind of institutions we have, the family values that we share and that you're raised with. You know, these things are these things are radically different in Britain than they are literally just a hundred miles away. So, they are self-evident to the founding fathers who are Christian Englishmen. If you divorce the ability for people to appeal to Christianity as the moral foundation of the Constitution, then you disconnect them from the great chain of civilization, which is not a chain of bondage, but is rather a thread that leads them out of the maze of meaninglessness. You disconnect them from that cultural heritage, which means that, a bit like Wiley e. Coyote, all the values of liberalism are just over a precipice and haven't looked down and realized they're not standing on anything yet. When they do, they're going to fall. Like, your, your, your values are just sort of floating. And so this is why it's frustrating that James and, and I don't want to be rude, you know, I, I don't, cannot disembed his liberal presuppositions from a commitment to universality, but can't recognise that without a metaphysical appeal that all people are created morally equal from God, that you're just arguing a war of preferences. And and so, well, what, there, what, there is what, a way is, what overcomes this. There is there is a way that he could square the circle while yep. maintaining a certain level of liberalism, which would be to go back to, so, shall we say early 20th century style eugenicist liberalism um, if, if he's trying to recognize where these values come from because you could say that the particular values that a, st that a um, nation ends up adopting come from a people tied to a geographical location over the course of maybe a thousand years or more that develop through their shared heritage and cultures particular values but that would imply certain that would imply that america is an ethnostate and james would not agree with that yeah and that, so would, that, would that would lead would imply him into that certain trap. certain uh, endpoints that james would not be comfortable with yes so you either have to i'm sorry agree with christianity as the founding presupposition of the united states and so that the christian nationalists aren't an aberration and that you've mischaracterized them as being some sort of um well, wholesale Fed operation. There's a direct quote from his chat with Carl, which I don't think is fair. Or you have to acknowledge that the liberal worldview rests on a bunch of presuppositions that don't have as strong a root as the thing that you're critiquing. 
And so I, I hope this has been taken in good faith because I don't think that was a fair smear to hit the Christian nationalists with, who I don't even particularly agree with either. I don't think that's a fair characterization of Christianity. I think that there's too much contempt for Christianity shown here, particularly because James hasn't grounded his liberalism in something strong enough to defend, and he's grounded it in Christianity without even realizing it. So if this leads to a fruitful pr conversation with, with James in the future, that would be fantastic. I am looking forward uh, we really got into the weeds here for, for discussion wise right, so right, we, isn't it? we ran over time but I'm, I'm looking forward to your stuff particularly on the more liberalism side yes. of things in future I, I've got a lot of comments to make and w with that with, seeing as that's all we've got time yep, for we've got up against the clock we've got two super chats Fantastic. the first one from Neo Unrealist for a dollar thank you very much Neo Unrealist saying all this fear of white Christians the first town to ban pride flags in the US is a Muslim majority Hamtramck Michigan uh, a few days ago that's very interesting but let's be perfectly honest there the ones who are allowed to because like the rainbow lobby the muslim lobby are another pet of the regime the problem is that having put this coalition together these two things are completely antithetical to one another given the certain social beliefs that muslims have versus the social beliefs that uh, the rainbow lobby have so this was always going to end up falling apart yeah. i suppose now it was just going to be who's going to stack higher on the oppression hierarchy as far as the regime um, as who they're willing to actually put ahead. This is a product of civil rights law, which I'm sure will be included in your part because that is going to also be a sticking yes. point for the liberals versus the metaphysical national conservatives and Christians in future. And the second super chat that we've got on Rumble for a whopping $50 oh, from Cranky Texan. Thank you very much for that donation. It is really appreciated. Just says, great work, guys. Please keep doing these. Thank you very much for the money and thank you so much for the appreciation because uh, I've really enjoyed this. Yeah, no, it was good fun. So we'll be coming back for a part two in the future. We're currently got some things going on so the schedule is a little bit disrupted so yep. stay tuned for announcements but uh, again thanks for the donations and your continued support on the website as premium members it helps us keep the lights on and helps us bring you content have a great weekend everyone we will be back next week for the podcast at one o'clock until then take care